and welcome back again. Uh, it's, it's really good to see all of you. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, this year, but I think before we do that, we ought to have prayer. And I'm wondering if you have any requests you'd like to make. For the year? For the year, for a good year, yeah. And um, I have a request. Uh, you may remember that I was having trouble with my shoulder mm-hmm. um, because my back went out and my neck was out. And it was out for six months, so my oh. back is used to being out. And now my muscles are all just really bad. Mm. They're they're weak and and they go into knots and I have frozen shoulder. And I'm which is kind of like being in torture. <laughs> I prefer <appreciate it. laughs> um, my back, my neck, and my back can go out so easily just doing something that I would never dream it would put it out. You know, yeah. like last night I was trying to open something and this muscle knifed uh, and pulled my neck out. <laughs> just I'm like, how can this happen? Um, it's better this morning. I I kind of worked I worked the muscle back. And the muscles are getting back, and so the neck's getting back. <laughs> and it's always a lot better. But I would like prayer because I'm kind of in a catch-22. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the physical therapists are doing a great job. You know, I have to commend them for torturing me because <laughs> <laughs> they're moving me along steadily. But I would, I would still like God's hand. It still hurts. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us back to another year of school. We thank you for the opportunity we have of learning about you and studying about you on this um, beautiful Sabbath morning. We pray that you will be with us in our discussion. We pray that you will give us a good year, that we will learn the things that we need to know, that uh, we will not forget you in our busyness. And we pray that um, you'll be with our needs, our personal needs, and that you will fulfill those needs. Uh, Bless us and guide us during our class discussion today. May we be inspired anew to uh, trust you and to allow you to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, I have a new handout. Actually, we're going to use an old handout, which is the uh, atonement, the original atonement document. Let me see if I can find that. Actually, it's Ellen White's use of forensic terminology, and we're going to be going to the next to the last page. This is the easiest way to tell you, since I have this perennial habit of not numbering pages. Uh, and we're going to do mediation and intercession. This is the section I wanted to do before we go to the Bible and do pretty much the same thing that we've done with Ellen White. Um, at least I want to take you through the evidence in the Bible to, that supports the way we see God. Um, and so what, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be doing mediation and intercession first. Um, and hopefully that will only take us a few weeks. Then we're going to work through the Bible uh, foundationally because we need that background before we attempt Babylon. Um, mm. And then we will head for Babylon. I think I'm going to go ahead so I don't have to carry these around. My bad back and shoulder. Um, I'll hand these out. We won't be getting to these probably today. 
Um, we're going to be straight reading. We're going to be straight reading um, some statements that are helpful as a background. And I apologize for the different colored paper. Um, somebody left this in the machine. <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves around here. <laughs> um, so we will be doing the mediation intercession, and then with that, we will be doing the thoughts on it. It's a similar format to what we had last time. Um, but today, we're going to be doing this document, because I think we need that document as, as understanding, for understanding. And, and we can pause, you know, frequently to discuss if you have any questions or any comments to make. Um, I'll begin by reading the first, number one, I think I'll read the whole thing. Uh, the work of Christ as man's intercessor is presented in the beautiful prophecy of Zechariah concerning him whose name is the branch. Says the prophet, he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall be the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his, that is the Father's throne, and he shall be priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the council of peace shall be between them both. The love of the Father, no less than that of the Son, is the fountain of salvation for the lost race, said Jesus to his disciples before he went away. I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And in the ministration of the sanctuary above, the counsel of peace shall be between them both. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So right here, Ellen White sides with those of us who believe there's no difference between Jesus and the Father. And that whatever Jesus' mediation is, it is not begging the Father to forgive us and love us, and so on. Any questions or comments about that before we move on? Okay, let's do number two. The deepest interest manifested among men in the decisions of earthly tribunals but faintly represents the interest evinced in the heavenly courts when the names entered in the book of life come up in review before the judge of all the earth. The divine intercessor presents the plea that all who have overcome through faith in his blood will be forgiven their transgressions. The plea that all have ever overcome through faith in his blood be forgiven their transgressions, that they be restored to their Eden home, and crowned in joint, as joint heirs with himself to the first dominion. Satan, in his efforts to deceive and tempt our race, had thought to frustrate the divine plan in man's creation. But Christ now asks that this plea be carried into effect as if man had never fallen. He asks for his people not only pardon and justification, full and complete, but a share in his glory and a seat upon his throne. While Jesus is pleading for the subjects of his grace, Satan accuses them before God as transgressors. The great deceiver has sought to lead them into skepticism, to cause them to lose confidence in God, to separate themselves from his love, and to break his law. Now he points to the record of their lives, to the defects of their character, the unlikeness to Christ, which had dishonored their Redeemer, to all the sins that he has tempted them to commit, and because of these he claims them as his subjects. Jesus does not excuse their sins, but shows their penitence and faith, and claiming for them forgiveness, 
He lifts his wounded hands before the Father and his holy angels, saying, I know them by name. I have graven them on the palms of my hands. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And to the accuser of his people he declares, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Christ will close his faithful ones with his own righteousness, that he may present them to his Father, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Their names stand enrolled in the book of life, and concerning them it is written, They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay, um, there's two things I'd like to point out about this. Uh, this sounds like Jesus is pleading with the Father to mm-hmm. this, right? But she words this very carefully. She doesn't say he's standing with God or standing in such a way that he's pleading, but rather he's standing before God, meaning that God is is the one presiding over the tribunal, the, the courtroom setting here. And um, I don't see this as a legal court, but as a cosmic court, uh, a court that's built on foundationally on creation. So she she words this carefully, and therefore that reason I do not think it negates the statement uh, that we read at the the first in Great Controversy. Um, But notice that the second paragraph, while Jesus is pleading for the subjects of his grace, Satan accuses them before God as transgressors. He doesn't accuse them to God. He accuses them before God. So who is he accusing them to? (laughs) Okay. If you accuse someone to something, you're trying to persuade (coughs) that person to believe what you're saying about them. Mm -hmm. Right? So who is he trying to persuade? Us. The rest of the people. Well, let's let's read on and see if if we don't find an answer. The great deceiver has sought to lead them into... Skepticism would cause them to lose confidence in God and separate themselves from his love and break his law. Now he points to the records of their lives, to the defects of character, the unlikeness of Christ, which has dishonored their Redeemer, to all the sins that he has tempted them to commit. And because of these, he claims them as his subjects. So it sounds like he's done this in the past already to us. Now he's trying to persuade somebody that we are his subjects. Who is he trying to persuade if it's not God? Um, I'm not going to ask you to turn to this, but Daniel 7. As I looked, this is Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair was half his head was white like wool, his throne was a flaming fire, and all his wheels were ablaze. A wheel of a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Who are these thousands? Talked about it before, right? Mm-hmm. People from other worlds, right? Unfallen worlds. Yeah, angels, maybe. Mm-hmm. So we can almost say the onlooking universe, um, and we can say that because the people from other worlds would be representatives from those worlds. Mm-hmm. I don't know that every single person in the whole universe. I mean, that would be just 
unfathomable numbers, but but representatives from all the worlds and the angels are present in this courtroom setting. And they stand before him. The books are open, and it's an open court. And if you compare this with Job 1 and 2, where Satan can come in and accuse anybody, you have God operating in a very open court that involves the entire universe. These are not passive players standing around watching the show. These are involved in the whole discussion. The angels have to bear witness to what has ha- they have observed in our lives because God does not God does not exercise his sovereignty in the way that we think. He allows things to play out. He bases everything on the evidence and it's all open and his whole universe has to agree. Paul in was it Colossians Jesus died to reconcile the whole universe it's uh, the Greek word there is ta penta which means the all it's uh, the closest we have to it is a German word uh, all and what it means um, because it can mean the whole universe or, or everything just all inclusive and so if, if we recognize this um Satan accuses them before God, but not to God. He accuses them before him, and he accuses them to the universe. He is trying to persuade the universe uh, to not accept us. Because God is, does not, is not autocratic. He is not a dictator. He is, uh, you might say, the closest government that we know that pertains to God is our own government. Uh, can, uh, well, it's our own democracy, democratic government. Uh, it's government by the people for the people. Mm-hmm. But I think a better term is consensual government. God runs his universe on the consent of the governed. So that's what that's one thing I see going on here. And then, of course, why why is it that Jesus, you know, he lifts his wounded hands and he says, I... Uh, I have graven them on the palms of my hand. Why is it that his death on the cross allows him to defend us? How, how, does, how, does, how does pleading his blood have any effect on the universe and on his ability to forgive? It's interesting because you, you talk about how you don't, or you have a problem with the idea of, of Jesus' death like appeasing around for God. Absolutely. And so that's that's like a pretty common idea yeah. in Christianity. So how you unpack that for Christ's sacrifice to still mean what it means, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that you ask uh, what Christ's sacrifice means because I know you, Dr. Sheldon, have taken issue with, with some people's understanding of Christ's sacrifice being an appeasement of mm-hmm. a wrathful God. When mm-hmm. One of your main points is that... Mm-hmm. God is not wrathful. Okay, so how do we how yeah, do we unpack so how do we it? Unpack it in that light. Okay, let's work on that a little bit, and this will be easier to do from the Bible actually than from Ellen White. But you remember, if you remember last year when we read that da- the commentary on the Desire of Ages, chapter seventy nine, that she establishes that Jesus' death 
establish the nature of God's justice and his mercy. And I don't have these statements with me. Uh, if we had time, I would look them up. But there are several places in, in some rather not so well known places that she makes the statement that Satan had an overbearing view of justice. And he insisted that that kind of justice had to be the, the way. And so in these Ayurveda's uh, chapter 79, she points out that Satan uh, claimed that justice destroyed mercy, that if, if human beings sinned, they could not be forgiven. And she points out that when Jesus died, it showed that human beings could be forgiven. On what basis? What had Jesus' death do that established that God would be able to forgive? That God could forgive? Keeping in mind, this is an open court. Everything rests upon evidence. And God has to give and unpack that evidence. Uh, he has to demonstrate it. It's not enough to bring evidence that's already existing. God has to demonstrate that evidence. How did Jesus' death uh, demonstrate that evidence? Well, for me, it seems that what you need, and fortunately we have a board, so I can illustrate this today. Mm -hmm. Let's assume that up here, I can't reach very high, but up here is uh, where we want to be. This is perfection, okay? And we fell, and our fall was not immediate. We went kind of like this. I know all of us maybe are on the same level, but we're all fallen. And that fallenness is the result of being deceived about God's character. And Ellen White makes that very, very clear, both in the first chapter of Desire of Ages and the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets. And in Great Controversy. So, three places. She makes that very, very clear that we fell through believing Satan's lies about God's character. What were some of those lies... What were some of those lies? Well, one of them was that God was arbitrary. If you go back to the Garden of Eden story, the serpent and the woman have this dialogue, uh, it becomes clear that, that one of the lies is God is arbitrary. He's arbitrarily withholding this fruit from you. Another is that God is selfish. He's selfishly withholding this fruit from you. Another lie is you will not surely die. That lie is the most deadly lie. You shall not surely die. Mm -hmm. Pun intended. Mm -hmm. That lie is the most deadly lie that Satan ever uttered. Why? Because what he's saying is, sin will not hurt you. Inference, God will. And once you believe that, then it is... If God is going to be just, he can't forgive. If you sin, you're gone. And I think that, uh, on the other hand, if God's law is descriptive, how does that change things? If God's law is descriptive, God isn't the one who's going to kill us. It's sin that's going to destroy us. Right? Because now we're dealing with something like natural law. Uh, if If I were about to jump off a 40-foot building and somebody 
uh, was there trying to stop me and I did jump off would God have killed me? would the person behind me have killed me? no I would have killed myself and the law of gravity would have also helped to <laughs> end my life so uh, that's the nature of descriptive law descriptive law works on cause and effect relationships and whatever causes uh, whatever you do has an effect okay and if Satan bought into that at all he believed that it was completely arbitrary law of cause and effect and therefore it could not the penalty could not be revoked because I jump off a cliff inevitably I'm going to perish but God said no that's not the way it is human beings were deceived about God the battlefield of cause and effect relationships in terms of sin is in the mind and the mind can change in deception when people are deceived they can change their minds about God and if I come into human flesh and I reveal the Father many people will change their minds about God so here's how this works in this graph we, we're going downhill but we need the truth about God in Jesus particularly at the cross we see that sin causes death and that it caused his death and that leads us to repentance the goodness of God leads us to repentance and so we turn around instead of going down we turn around and we start back up as soon as we turn around God says wonderful you've you've come to repentance repentance by the way in Hebrew literally means to turn around Hmm. Uh, in Greek it means to change the mind same thing uh, so you've, you've turned around you've changed your mind about me now I can bring you back up this path I can heal the damage done I can I forgive you the past is not what's important it's where you are on this line if you're going this way you're safe to save if you're going that way you're not that's the, the, the important thing and so through Jesus' death, Jesus demonstrated that sin leads to death, not God. And therefore, God is in the saving business. And that by refuting Satan's lies, he can win us back to love and trust. And thus, he can heal the damage done. And forgiveness is just, God is the one who forgives. It is his nature. Now, there's another way in which Jesus' death, I think, demonstrates this. Ellen White takes a picture of the cross that Satan and his angels are there and God and his and the whole universe are there. Now whether they're physically there uh, all crammed into one little space around the cross I, that's a, to me a, a moot question. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it doesn't matter. They're there. Mentally they're there uh, as if they were standing there. And I believe that for the first time since the rebellion, God and Satan are like this. God looks at Satan. And how do you think he looked at Satan? Here, here's Jesus. 
his own son, who is dying the most dreadful death of separation from him, is absolutely tearing out the father's heart. Here's Jesus' death, and here's God looking at Satan, who has caused Jesus' death. What do you think? How do you think God looked at Satan at that juncture? I think he looked at Satan the same way Jesus looked at Judas when he washed his feet. And when Judas came in and threw the money down. Ellen White says he looked at Judas with pity. And I think Satan got the message that if God was forgiving of him, and remember, forgiveness does not guarantee eternal life. That's because we live in a cause and effect world. And, and God has forgiven every one of us, but we have a choice to make. God isn't going to force that forgiveness on us. So, if God could forgive Satan after all he's done, he knew he didn't have a chance with us. See, Satan has tried to quench God's love for us. He has tried to make us so stinky rotten down here that he could maybe extinguish the love of God for us. And he hasn't been able to do it. That's part of what all this is about. And it's Jesus' death that established the truth about the nature and consequences of sin and the truth about the nature and consequences of forgiveness. That God is the forgiver. Uh, by the way, that's in uh, God's own self-disclosure in Exodus. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant goodness and truth, giving mercy for thousands, and forgiving. It's a participle. One who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So, God is someone who forgives. So, I, that's, that would be my answer to the question. I'm sorry it's so complicated. Someday I'll, I'll get it more simplified, I hope. <laughs> Jesus statement. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, but uh, you see, it, it takes a paradigm shift to get there because we are used to thinking in a very legal construct where, where God is the one who's sovereign and he's the one who decides everything and he's the one that determines our destiny. He determines whether we're saved or lost. And when we get to the Bible, when, when we start exploring this topic in the Bible, we're going to find that Jesus says that God, this isn't the way it works at all. We're the ones that decide our destiny. We're the ones that decide whether we're saved or lost. And it is a, a case of cause and effect consequences. So the bottom line, uh, maybe for all of this, is that God is in the saving business. Sin is in the destroying business. And we've got to keep those two separate. Once we make God in the in destroying business... We make sin out to be something he doesn't like, for which he punishes us. Instead of sin as something serious that is destructive to us. And that God is trying to rescue us from. So, it's, it's a very different way of thinking about sin and consequences. Uh, and about God. There was a picture posted on Facebook was it last week? It was an old-fashioned painting of Jesus knocking at the door. You've probably all seen that picture. Mm -hmm. A theologian took that 
and he wrote beneath it, I'm knocking at your heart's door. If you will let me in, please let me in, so I can save you from what I'm going to have to do to you if you do not let me in. That's that's the popular view. (laughs) (laughs) That's the popular view that's out there about God. That, and and the thing is, God doesn't have to do anything. We're His dying children. He's keeping us artificially alive, in a sense, in order to win us back to give us another chance. If He let us go and let us be, the, according to the choices we have made, we'd be dead. Hmm. We'd be gone. So I, I think that's important, and I'm glad you brought that up, Jonathan, because we need we need to understand this. And I'll be happy to reiterate this. Maybe I'll do a better job next time. We don't have time to read number three. Is there any question that's come to your mind uh, as we've discussed this? On this illustration you drew for us, um, Mm -hmm. you say when we repent, we turn around, literally. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then move back towards God Mm -hmm. and and perfection. But would would you say that it's God who does the moving? And not us still? Okay. Yes. I, I do not see us, God standing up at the top, going, come on, come on. <laughs> 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 that's not the way it works. It, 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 we fail if that's the case. There is nothing good in us. We can't see what's right and wrong, let alone do it. Our mo- you think about all the good things you've done this week. How many of them did you have a good motive for? <laughs> you know, right there, we're all had. <laughs> it's it's only God that works in us to do of His own good pleasure, and it's His pleasure to set us right, to keep us right. Um, and it's it, uh, we are responders. That's that's our mission in life is to respond to God. So He loves us. He first loves us, and we re- love Him because He first loved us. That's First John four nineteen. Um, he he shows us his trustworthiness, and we trust him in response. He shows us that um, what he says and what he asks us to do makes good sense, and we say yes. We want to do that. We're weak; we can't do it on our own, but we say yes to it. And so then God begins that work in that process of healing and restoring us. And and the the goal really of the Christian uh, is to be so connected to God that he can lead us up that path. And it becomes our natural will and our natural desire to obey. Um, And obedience is so much larger in this paradigm than in a legal paradigm. Um, It isn't keeping rules as much as living in harmony with love. There's a, a passage I like from Romans that I think sums it up really nice, mm-hmm. really nicely. It's uh, Romans 2, um, uh, verses 3 through 6. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul, Paul is um, uh, saying to the um, Christian um, in Rome, Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that, that word for yourself can be in yourself. Right. The, the alternative to embracing the goodness and love of God. And by the way, it takes humility to do that. And that's why pride really is the opposite of love. Because pride doesn't admit a need, whereas if, if we're going to be loved, we have to admit we need that. Pride is built on selfishness. Selfishness is the opposite of love. So, so it takes humility, and by embracing that love, we become tender-hearted, forgiving ourselves. And by resisting that love and not coming to repentance, we become hard-hearted mm-hmm. and angry and resentful. And then we store up all our anger and resentfulness to God uh, until it consumes us in the day of judgment. So, it really has to do with a response to God. It isn't something God does arbitrarily in us. He does it with our cooperation. But it is something God does work in us. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves, not who destroys. We ask that as we see you anew, we may make the paradigm shifts we need to be able to understand who you are, what you want of us, and how you accomplish that in us. Bless us as we go our way. Bless us during this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.